Good morning, church. As you've probably heard, please keep Dale in your prayers. Um, also be praying for looking around, see who all not here. We still have people who are on their third week of being sick, so or something around that. There are improvements. Eddie did come set up the church this morning. Uh, but just keep everyone uh, in your prayers, and we'll update you more on what's going on when we know more. Before, uh, before we start in Genesis this morning, and we're going to finish chapter 9, I actually thought maybe we were going to go farther, but as I started laying out everything last night and preparing it, I realized, no. I thought we are going to maybe just get, in, get through chapter 10 as well, because it's just the table of nations. And, and uh, I thought, well, there's, there's really not a lot to talk about concerning this weird story here at the end of chapter 9 on Noah. But as I started laying out my notes, I realized, oh, well, there's a whole lot to talk about here. So we aren't going to get into chapter 10 at all. But before we start Genesis this morning, let's just talk current events. Uh, let's just talk this last week. So I'm sure all of you know, um, you, you probably were, you know, had your heart torn from your body uh, when you read about the events that happened this week in Uvalde, Texas. Um, there's many different numbers being thrown around, but from what I've read, we have 21 dead, right? 19 uh, elementary school children, elementary school children, which is really hard to fathom. It's, it's, it's even hard to say, right? I mean, it's just difficult. It breaks my heart. Um, and our hope and our comfort in this to get through this type of a thing, of course, lies in Jesus. And uh, we know that the Lord is uh, near the brokenhearted. Um, and we should, of course, weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn. It is possible, believe it or not, it is possible for us to be brokenhearted and care for the brokenhearted at the same time. Uh, that's possible in Jesus. And I just want to say, though it is somewhat of a controversial subject, uh, the problem is not guns, right? The problem is not politics or policies or the lack of policies, right? The problem is a moral one. The problem is a sinful one. The problem is a spiritual one. And we're a nation, the United States is a nation that for the most part, and I hate to say it, but has, it has turned its back on God, right? At one time, believe it or not, part of our federal budget in the United States was to buy Bibles and send them to other countries that didn't have access to them. That was part of our federal budget, believe it or not. Today, we spend $500 million a year to help finance abortion, right? We send $40 billion to other countries to help them fight wars, right? Well, across our country, our mothers can't even find uh, baby formula for their own children, right? We're a country whose priorities are screwed up, to say the least, to put it mildly, right? The world we live in is corrupted, right? It is diseased. We do not live in a world that understands common sense. Evil is evil, right? Evil exists, 
legislation will never stop evil. Evil pays no attention to laws. Right? Satan looks to kill and destroy. Satan is your adversary. He, as the Bible puts it, he's a roaring lion prowling around wanting to devour you. Devour you and your family. Right? And as we read in Genesis, as we've been going through Genesis just in the last few weeks, remember, before the flood and after the flood, God said the same thing concerning man. He said, every intention of the thoughts of man's heart is evil continually. Right? After the flood, he said, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. That's what we read last week when we were going through Genesis. Right? Man's heart. It tells us in Mark chapter 7 that what comes out of a person is what defiles him. Right? From within, out of the heart of man, evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things, it tells us, come from their heart, come from within, and that's what defiles a person. So if you're searching for hope, or if you have family members or friends you know who are just completely at a loss right now because of this last week and everything that's quite frankly just been going on that's crazy, if you've been searching for hope in the mess that we live in, if you're looking for hope in the affairs of this world, your search is going to be in vain. You're not going to find it in this world. Thankfully, as Billy Graham said, actually, he said, our hope does not rest in the affairs of this world, right? It rests in Christ who is coming again, right? Only God can fix the hearts of man. That's a job only God can do. So until people acknowledge the real problem, the real solution will never be found, right? So you might know people who have a lot of questions. You might know people who are asking a lot of questions right now because this is when all the questions come out. Why? Right? Why? How come? Sometimes we don't want to engage those people because we feel that we don't have the answers for them. We're just as confused as they are. Right? Why? How come? It baffles us just as much as it baffles them. But I'm here to tell you, you don't need to have all the answers. You're not required to have the answers. You're not. Just pray with them. Just love on them. Just show them Jesus, because Jesus is the answer. And that's the best thing you can do. That's the best thing you can do right now. So we're going to go through Genesis. We're starting with Genesis verse 18 in Genesis chapter 9. We're going to read through the end of the chapter. There are some weird stories, and this is one of the weird stories. Starting in verse 18, chapter 9. It says, The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. And these three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. And then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. And when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Curse be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. 
And he also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. And may God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. And after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word and I thank you for your comfort and I thank you for your strength and I thank you for your spirit. And I pray, Lord, that you just pour that out on us right now. We pray, Lord, that your words be spoken and your words be spoken to our heart, and Lord, and we just continue to take them in, hold on to them, and stand on that foundation of your word and the truth of your word, Lord. I pray, Lord, that we can just continue to love others, even in the bleakest of times and the darkest of times, Lord, that we can be the light, because we have the light in us, the light of Jesus. And I pray that we can shine it, care for it, encourage, lift up, and bless our neighbors. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. So there's many things going on here in these verses. Some weird things, right, with Noah. I mean, we have Shem, Ham, and Japheth, three sons of Noah, not listed in order of birth. And it tells us, in my Bible, in parentheses, right, it says Ham was the father of Canaan. Now, also, just so you know, as we get into chapter 10, we're not going to do that today, but just to give you, just so you understand, it says Ham was the father of Canaan, but Canaan was not the firstborn, right? Canaan probably was his youngest at the time. So he has other children that are older than Canaan. But it's just, it's telling you, it's in parentheses in my Bible. There's a reason for it. It wants you to know Ham was the father of Canaan, okay? And it says, these three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed, right? Which just means all of us, everyone, right? God gave Noah the order to go forth, be fruitful and multiply and fill the whole earth. And the whole earth will be filled, not from Noah himself, but from his sons and the descendants of his son's sons and so forth and so on. They'll fill the whole earth. We're all related in that sense, right? Because we all come from sons of Noah. And farther back, we actually all come from Adam and Eve. Right? So when we pick up here, this last picture of Noah that we see, probably decades after they left the ark, this last picture of Noah that we see here, Noah has started a vineyard. He becomes a, he's become a man of the soil, as it says. And he plants a vineyard. And then, of course, the next sentence, he drank of the wine. And then the next sentence, he became drunk. It all goes in order there. You start a vineyard, you drink of the wine, you get drunk. Or at least in Noah's case. Right? So we see here, this last picture we see of Noah, this strange picture, right? The fall of a godly man. And we have no other picture of Noah tripping and stumbling and falling, really, and through his, his whole life. But here we see the fall of a, a godly man. So it should be no surprise to us, of course, that wine is first mentioned. This is the first mention of wine in the Bible. And then it's followed, of course, by the first mention of man's drunkenness. Right? Surprise. Right? Some say that some people will, will want to say, if, if you've heard anybody talk about this, they're trying to give Noah the benefit of the doubt here. Right? We're not going to give Noah the benefit of the doubt. I'll just let you know ahead of time. But some people will try to give Noah the benefit of the doubt here, and they'll say, well, grapes never fermented this way before the flood, 
right? So because uh, the atmosphere being different and the canopy and, and all the, you know, the different things that have temperature and, you know, and all this stuff, grapes never fermented in the same way before the flood. So though Noah knew how to make, you know, juice from grapes, Noah was not prepared for how uh, they now, what they now became, right? He was not prepared for alcohol in this way, right? Ah, you know, okay, whatever. Like I said, we're not going to make any excuses for Noah because there's nothing in scripture that would teach us that he was ignorant concerning what would happen if he drank too much wine. I think he was aware of what it was, regardless. Anyway, there is a, there's a Japanese proverb that says, and probably some of you guys can testify to this, uh, that says, first the man takes a drink, then the drink takes a drink, and then the drink takes the man. Right? We know that it's not a sin to drink alcohol, but that being said, often the drink becomes the master and the drinker becomes the slave. Right? And so be wise. One of the things that the Bible does is that it does not hide the warts and the ugliness, and the sins of godly men. And Noah was a godly man. Noah walked with the Lord, right? He's a hero of faith. He's in Hebrews chapter 11. He's a godly man, right? But the Bible does not hide the sins of the saints. It lets you see them, warts and all, right? It doesn't excuse their sins either. The Bible's not excusing Noah for what happened here, and it's not hiding what happened here either. They're here, they're hearing God's word for us, for us as a warning, right? For, so we know how not to act. So we know what not to do, right? Spurgeon says that God will never allow uh, his children to sin successfully, meaning that whatever you do will always be found out, right? There's, there's, there, you will never have any good excuse for your sin ever because God will never allow you to sin successfully. What was done in the dark will be made known in the light, right? Luke eight seventeen. for nothing is hidden that will be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Anyway, so as if things couldn't get worse for Noah, he drinks, he gets drunk, and then he passes out in his tent naked, right? At least it wasn't on the front lawn, right? He passes out in his tent naked. I'm pretty sure that probably wasn't his plan, right? But that's what happened regardless, right? And then it says that he was discovered by Ham, the father of Canaan, it says again, right? He was discovered by Ham. He saw his nakedness, and then he went and he told his brothers. When a, in the Hebrew, in the word saw, it means to gaze in pleasure or delight. It can be translated even enjoy. The word, the Hebrew word is translated enjoy a few times. Uh, then it says he went and he told his brothers outside after he saw this. And the word told in the Hebrew means to tell with excitement. Literally, that means that he announced it, which means he didn't come up to his brothers and go, we got to help dad. Uh, I just looked, I just looked in the tent. He's passed out naked. We got to go cover him up. It means he went out there and goes, you won't believe what I just saw. Right. He told it with excitement. He rejoiced actually. 
is what is behind the word. He rejoiced in the weakness of his father. And he was delighted to tell someone else about it. Right? Possibly the first tattletale in the Bible. Guys, I got something to tell you. You're not going to believe it, right? I kind of think maybe his thoughts were kind of like this. Now, you may not, you know, this is just my process. He looks in there, right? And he's like, oh man, the old man blew it. Godly man, huh? Walked with God. Man, he's such a hypocrite. I won't ever let him forget this, right? He's never going to live this down. Can't wait to share this on Facebook. All right, let me take a selfie. I'm going to get his butt in the picture, right? You know, something, something along those lines, right? maybe not exactly like that. I'm going to post it on Twitter, right? I'm going to humiliate him. Right? I'm going to love this. This is going to be great. Obviously, Ham's response could have been different, right? Matter of fact, Ham's response should have been different. But his response instead was disrespectful. Ham obviously didn't have any good intentions. They weren't honorable. They may have even been carnal in nature. More than likely, Ham resented his father. Right? Possibly he resented his authority. Possibly he resented his moral behavior. And those hidden feelings that Ham had, they'd been left simmering on the stove for years. And now they came to a boil. And what it graphically shows us, we even talked about this last week, is that man's heart is still rebellious. And despite the cleansing of the flood, Man was still a sinner, and Satan was still at work in the sons of disobedience, just as it tells us, for example, in Ephesians 2. However, as it also tells us in Ephesians 2, for us as Christians, that is how we once walked, not how we are to be walking today. But yet that was how Ham was walking. And Ham may have thought when he went to go tell his two brothers about it that they were going to have a similar response as well. They're tired of, of dad's authority over us too. They're going to think this is great. And he goes and tells his two brothers, y'all, man, you're not going to believe it. Come on. Dad's passed out naked in the tent. But their response was entirely different. They didn't have the same response. And this is the example for us that we should follow here. Shem and Japheth, they had a completely different response. They were not going to revel in their father's shame like Ham. Instead, they took incredible care to cover their father's shame. Right? Their faces turned away from his nakedness. They grabbed the blanket, they grabbed the coat, they grabbed the tarp, whatever they grabbed to cover their dad. They walked in the tent backwards, not even looking at him, and covered him up so they wouldn't see him, right? We don't read that they even verbally rebuked Ham for what he had said, but they didn't need to verbally rebuke Ham because their actions were a stronger rebuke than anything they could have said. 
You know, it tells us in Romans 12, it says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Right? Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That is what Shem and Japheth were doing. Right? They rebuked their brother in their actions. You want to shame your dad? We want to help him and love him and cover him up. Right? And what that means is, is real simple. How someone responds to sin and embarrassment, right, and the embarrassment of another, how someone responds to that is a sign of their character. And guess what? The Bible tells us love covers a multitude of sins. It also tells us to honor your mother and your father. Right? It tells us in Proverbs 17, 9, that whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Right? He who covers a transgression seeks love. So what were they doing? They were seeking love. They were looking to cover their father and not shame him or humiliate him or embarrass him or anything like that. As Christians, we should never, 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 right? Never use someone else's sin to further our own agenda, right? To further or increase our social media popularity, as we see it happen a lot online, right? We should never use someone else's sin to shame or condemn or guilt someone for laughter's sake, definitely, right? We should never do it for revenge. We should never do it to disrespect them just because you consider yourself a better person than they are. Christians aren't perfect. Right? Jesus was the only one who lived a perfect life. If this was written about you, what embarrassing thing would be written here? You don't want to think about that, do you? Right? I mean, we're all candidates for conduct unbecoming to a Christian. All of us. We're no better. So what we should do is what it tells us, for instance, in Galatians chapter 6. This is what we should do. It says, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you, you who are spiritual, you who are followers of Christ, you who follow Jesus, you who love God, you should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Right? Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? Love one another as Christ loves you. Right? Our task, our task as someone who loves Jesus is to help restore them. Right? It's to help redeem them. It's to help them be renewed. The world wants to do the opposite. Someone whose heart is not following God, when it sees someone trip, stumble, and fall, when it sees someone caught in their sin, what do they want to do with it? They want to take that and put it on a billboard and shame and humiliate them till the sun goes down. They don't want them to forget it. They don't want anyone else to forget what that person has done. They want to use that for their own leverage. That's what the world wants to do. But not for us. Not for us in Christ. We should never do that at all. We need to help restore them through Jesus in a spirit of gentleness, in love. I know it's been said, and you've probably heard this quote before, because I know Pat was here. He loved to quote it all the time. But that on the battlefield of life, Christians are the first to bury their wounded. We have an amber alert. Yeah. But we should never. 
That's, that's not what we should do. Christians should never be the first person to bury their wounded. Right? It reminds me of that Monty Python joke. Bring out your dead. I'm not dead yet. Well, you will be soon. Bring, I'm not dead. Can you help me with this? Dunk. Okay, put them on the cart. Right? We shouldn't be that way. Right? We, that's not, we should be restoring people in gentleness through Christ. Right? They will know we are Christians by our love. It's not our job to shame and guilt and disrespect others. We shouldn't be doing this. It's our job to love them. It's our job to love our neighbors. And guess what? It's our job to love our enemies. Oh, that's hard. Right? But they will know we are Christians by our love. So think about that the next time you're in an opportunity to do something such as this. When your emotions might be telling you something else, right? Because you're angry and you're upset. Think about what you're supposed to do because you love Jesus. You're supposed to love him. So Noah wakes up. Says he wakes up from his wine. <laughs> Noah wakes up from his wine. And he's a little confused, probably. Definitely embarrassed by the condition he sees himself in, maybe even a little ashamed. Yet it says that he figures it out. Right? It says, Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him. And so we know Ham, his youngest son, says that he awoke and knew what his son had done to him. Now, the word knew in the Hebrew just means to discern, right? So he understood, he figured it out. He figured out how his youngest son had, had shamed him or humiliated him. Probably he talked to Shem and Japheth. But, you know, possibly he talked to his wife, assuming that she was still alive, right? It seems logical that it's probably what he did. Hey, uh, what happened, right? And he got the story, right? Yet it's also possible that there was some sort of physical evidence that spoke to what happened as well. We're not really sure. A lot of people have read, you know, put all kinds of different speculations into what exactly went down. However, what Noah does next shaped things. Uh, was prophetical and had repercussions that in a sense we still feel today. It's often referred to as Noah's curse. It's not really a curse. Because Noah didn't have the power to curse people. Right? I mean, God can give a curse. We've seen him. We've seen him do it. Noah doesn't have the power to curse someone, unless, of course, this is God's word being spoken. Right? Unless it's the Spirit of God speaking through Noah. But without a doubt, what Noah says is prophetical. It has prophetic implications that are still unfolding today. Right? And also, just Bible trivia time, you know, tuck this one away for later. This is the only recorded speech of Noah in the Bible. Okay? So Noah says, blessed, actually, oh, back up. Noah says, cursed be Canaan. Now, who's he cursing? Ham's son, not Ham. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. 
And then he also says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant, and may God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Noah's curse, quote unquote, it's not directed towards Ham, who had sinned against him, but instead is directed towards Ham's son, Canaan. Why? There's a million theories, right? And there's no good answers, unfortunately. We can speculate all we want. It's not the sins of the father being put on the son, as a lot of people like to talk about. But it was probably to stress the idea that this prophetic word that Noah is speaking extends to not just Ham, but Ham's sons. So Ham understands the weight of what he did and how it affects his family, not just him. There could be more to it, though. Right? Because the descendants of Ham's sons, as you'll find out more about when we get into chapter 10, are the Egyptians and the Ethiopians and the Sumerians and, you know, and on down the line and other great nations. Right? So Noah's basically stating that Canaan and the descendants of Canaan, etc., would be servants of servants, right? Would be the servant of servant. So, and this is where a lot of confusion lies. How do we translate this word servant? Because this is where you have different camps and exactly what Noah is, how Noah is quote unquote cursing his son. Because the word can be translated slave is what you might be thinking when you read it. It can also be translated steward. Steward has a completely different connotation than slave does. Right? Matter of fact, steward is a much higher honor than slave is. Now, if you translate the word servant slave, if you go with that translation, which it can be, uh, then it's saying that the sons of Ham, that Canaan and etc., cetera, uh, are to be servants of servants. The thought there behind that is, therefore, they are now the lowest of servants. I mean, what's the lowest servant? The lowest servant is a servant who serves servants. Right? He's the lowest of slaves. The lowest of slaves is a slave who serves slaves. Right? So that's a really, that's the lowest position. So he's now cursed Canaan and Ham's line, basically, to be the lowest of people. Slaves to slaves. Right? Now, if the word is translated steward, which I said is a higher, has a higher, has a better connotation to it, it's a higher place of authority, has a lot more honor to be a steward than to be a slave, then the idea is that the descendants of Ham and Canaan, etc., would be stewards or servants to mankind in that they would therefore physically provide the means for man's needs and man's comforts. In other words, all their work that they do, everything that they build, everything that they grow, everything that they come up with, all the jobs that they start, their whole uh, society and everything that's involved with it is 
for the benefit of the rest of the world. And the rest of the world is his brothers. I mean, Shem and Japheth. The descendants of Shem and Japheth are the rest of the world. The descendants of Ham, therefore, the, you know, or Canaan, this is the group that is basically going to be a steward to the rest of the world. Everything that they do will be for their benefit. Everyone else will benefit from what they do. Which sounds a little better, right? So which one is it? Right? Which one? What's Noah saying? Is Noah cursing Ham and Canaan, his son Canaan, through his son Canaan, to be the lowest of lowest? Or is he telling Ham, all your work is going to be for the benefit of the rest of the world? In other words, you're going to do a lot of great things, but it's never going to really be for your benefit. Everyone else is going to. You know, you might think, oh, I'm going to do all these great things and everyone's going to see how great I am and they're going to have to come to me, right? <clears throat> and see all the splendor I have. But instead, all the splendor you have is going to be feeding them. It's going to be taking care of them. They're going to benefit from all your technology. They're going to benefit from all your crops. They're going to benefit from everything else. Well, historically, we see both. We see both historically. We see that the descendants of Ham and Canaan, etc., were the ones who developed, for example, structural forms and building tools and materials. They developed fabrics and created various sewing and weaving devices. They invented the concepts of practical mathematics, the machinery of commerce, such as money and banks. They invented paper and printing and on and on and on and on. And in that way, they were stewards to all the other nations of the world to their brothers, if you will. Now, as far as the lowest slaves is concerned, and to that idea, well, eventually, their territories and their inventions were all taken over by other nations. And eventually it was all taken from them. They didn't get it. They didn't get to keep it. And literally, many of those nations got put into actual slavery. Now, there's another thing as well that we have to think of, is that the idea of a curse, right, probably grew into a resentment against who gave it to you, who cursed you, right? Not just that. I mean, it's possible that Ham already, right, as we said, resented his father, hence the whole problem to begin with. But now Ham's sons are going to resent not just possibly Noah, but, right, their cousins and uncles and all the descendants of Shem and Japheth. And we're going to have this family feud now right? because of this resentment. And it would seem that that resentment was held onto and carried generations and generations and generations, Right? And that's where we see like the sins of the father being put onto the son. Not as in the curse, but in the fact that they don't let go of it. They don't change their life. They don't turn to God. There is no forgiveness. They just continue to hold on to the same resentment their father held on to. 
and then continue to hold on to the same revenge, their you know, grandfather, and on down the line. And how do we know that? Because we see it biblically. Right? The Canaanites were the nations that Israel conquered and are the people that, were, that Israel basically wiped out when they entered the promised land. Right? The Canaanite society was, a morally, was morally decayed. Right? And we're not going to get into that here. But it was really bad. Right? It was so bad that God ordered Israel not to compromise. Right? That's a whole other sermon. God ordered Israel not to compromise with them or their way of life and to destroy everything that would tempt them to do so. I mean, read Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. I'll read it for you. It says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them, and you shall sow no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons and taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. Why? Because you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. That's what the Lord told him. And just for the record, and as you'll see when we get into chapter 10, all those nations that are listed there, here in Deuteronomy 7, pretty much, those are all descendants of Ham and Canaan. So you can see the conflict that, was be, that's, that went on generation, generationally between the descendants of Ham and the descendants of Canaan and the descendants of Shem and the descendants of, I mean, really the descendants of Shem for the most part. Because Shem is the one who got the good blessing. And through the line of Shem is where you get to Abraham and, of course, Israel and then Jesus. And we'll talk more on that when we get into chapter 10. But when we look at what Noah says about Shem here, he says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. All right. Noah thanks the Lord for Shem. He didn't thank the Lord for Ham and he didn't thank the Lord for Japheth. Matter of fact, he says that the Lord is the God of Shem. He doesn't say that he is the God of Japheth. And he doesn't say that he is the God of Ham. He says that he is the God of Shem. Matter of fact, when you look at Japheth, he says, let Japheth dwell in the tents of Shem. What does that mean? That means if Japheth wants to follow God, Japheth has to come to Shem and do so in the tents of Shem. Because he is the God of Shem. And if they want to follow God, they have to follow the God of Shem. He's not the God of Japheth. What? That seems crazy, right? I mean, what's going on there? Well, we know, of course, that Shem is the line that leads, you know, like I said, to Abraham, who we'll meet in chapter 12 when we get there. And, of course, a little farther on down the line, we get to Jesus, right? So Noah's thanking the Lord for the descendants of Shem, and basically he's saying that whatever blessing in the future that comes from the line of Shem, that blessing would be so because of the grace of God. 
And interestingly, he doesn't say, like I said, that he is the God of Japheth or the God of Ham. Why? Because God was the God of Shem, for salvation is unto the Jews, as the Bible says. Where do the Jews come from? The Jews come from the line of Shem. The Jews were to be a light to the Gentiles. They were to be a light unto the other nations. The Jews were to lead the other nations right, to the true God, their God. In that sense, they were to bring the other nations under their tent, not be worshiping under the other nations' tents, which is unfortunately what happened in many cases. Right? So Israel was to be a light unto the Gentiles. And as it turns out, they weren't so great. They weren't so great at that. But then Jesus came. And Jesus is the light. A light that we now are to shine. We are to be a light to the people. Right? And Japheth, of course, was the ancestor of many of the Gentile nations. And it says, it says, may God enlarge Japheth. That's sort of a play on words because, because, uh, and many of the Gentile nations, yes, were large, right? But, but Japheth in the Hebrew comes from a root meaning to be open wide or to be open minded or in a sense enlarged. So it's kind of a play on words. He's sort of saying, right, you know, may God enlarge the open enlarged one, right? It's kind of a, a play on words. But, uh, so Japheth, you know, were more, his descendants were more open-minded, which is kind of what it means when it says enlarged. They're more intellectual. When you think of the Greeks and the Romans and those who came from the line of Japheth. So Noah, what he says here, these words, these prophetic words, they play out historically. And that the line of Shem is, has always been a more spiritual line, right? Dominated by religious motivations, you could say. Obviously, the Jews are in that line. And the line of Japheth, which I said is like the Greeks and the Romans and the Europeans and Americans even, uh, have been more intellectual, right? Science and philosophy and mathematics and, you know, things like that, to their detriment even, possibly. And then, of course, then you have the, the line of Ham, which were ended up being the pioneers that opened up the world to settlement and cultivation and technology, and we've just seen it go on down the line that way. To Noah, he lived another three and a half centuries. And we have no other information about him. This is just how it ends right here for Noah. I have no doubt that Noah still walked with God. Right? He was very faithful to his last breath. One event does not shape you. It does not define you. We all fall. We all have problems. You fall away, you get back up, right? We climb hills, we have our mountaintop experiences, and then we descend into valleys. That's how our walk goes. Sometimes dark valleys. But the Lord says, even though you walk through the valley of death, you have nothing to be afraid of. Because he's here with you. So when we fall, what do we do? We repent. We get back up and turn back to God and continue walking. And I'm sure that's what Noah did. I'm positive. Because he's, like I said, he's in the hall of faith. Right? 
He might have been in the home. I'm taking him out now. What? Got drunk. Lying naked in his tent. That's it. No. He's in the hall of faith. Because he walked with God and he was a man of faith. These things don't define us. Our sins don't define us. We are not who we are because of our sins. We are who we are because of Christ. Because of who we are in Christ. The world wants to define us by our sins. The world wants to define us by our mistakes. The world wants to define us by you know, that embarrassing thing that we did. But not God. He defines us through his son, Jesus. That's who we are. Loved. Children of God. Through Jesus Christ. And we know, there's a quote by Alexander White that says, a victorious Christian life is a series of new beginnings. And that's, that's the truth. Our life is a series of new beginnings. Well, we just have to keep getting back up and having a new beginning. We're starting over. Okay. And the Lord, guess what? He's still there. He's still there with us. He's still there walking with us. So as it told us in the beginning here in verse 19, that these three were the sons of Noah, and from these, the people of the whole earth was dispersed. Right? From these three sons of Noah, the whole earth was populated. The whole earth. And like I said, we'll talk about that more again in the chapter 10. But if you could trace our family trees back far enough, right, we would see that we're all cousins of cousins of cousins. We're all related. We're all family. Right? We're all blood. You know the phrase, the phrase blood relatives. Right? We'll be like, oh, they're all family, but these are blood relatives. Well, no, you're all blood relatives. Really. Especially through the blood of Christ. Right? We're all part of the body of Christ. And not only that, but we were made for a purpose. We were made for a purpose. Just as we see that there was actually purpose for all of these descendants of Noah to go and fill the earth, grow and enlarge. We were made for a purpose. And Acts 17 tells us, it says, and he made from one man, this is Paul actually talking to the, to the uh, Greeks, right? and he made from one man every nation of mankind. So Paul is telling them, all these nations on the earth all come from one person. And we tend not to think that way. But it brings us all back on the level playing field. Because wait a minute, we're all, from, we're all from the same family. We're all from the same person. We all come from right, the descendants of Noah, if you want to only go back that far. Right? We're all on the same playing field. There's no difference. Why do I think that I'm better than you? Why do you think that you're better than me? Why do we think that we're better than them? Now we're all on the same playing field because, because all of mankind came from one person. So he tells him, he says, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling. Who did that? God did. Right? That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. This is what Paul is telling them in Athens. Right? At the tomb of the unknown God. Guess what? We were all came from one person. We were all created with a purpose. What is that purpose? To seek God. To seek God. 
and hopefully find him, right? Because as it turns out, he is not far from you. He is not far from you. Right? We are made to seek God and find him. All of mankind created to seek out God. And that's what people are doing today. They're seeking out God. They may not know it. They may not understand it, but they're looking for answers. Right? And those answers that they're looking for are only found in Jesus. So when you are with people and they have those questions, why, how come? You can, you can, you can say, I, I don't have these answers for you, but I can tell you this. We all came from the same person. We were all created with the same purpose. And what you're asking has a real simple answer. But I don't have it. Jesus has it. Because you were created to seek out God and find him. And what you're doing right now is seeking. You're seeking for him. And guess what? He is not far from you. He is right here. And you can find him today. Because the Lord is near to all who call upon him. Right? To all who call upon him in truth. And if they truthfully call upon the Lord, guess what? They will find him. Right? So just tell him to call upon the Lord. That's your answer. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this word. I thank you for your words. I thank you for the, the words of God, the word of truth. So I pray, Lord, that you just continue to speak these to us so that we can continue to speak them to others, so we continue to shine our light on others. I thank you, Lord, for the truth that's in that. I thank you for the power of your spirit and the boldness of your spirit. I pray, Lord, that we can do just that as we continue to seek you out every day. We can continue to help people seek you out as well. Let them know that what they are searching for is you. Let us be light. Lord, we pray you just be with Dale and Lisa as she's in California and he's up here. Lord, just be with them right now. Be with the doctors and the nurses in the hospital. Just be their comfort. We just thank you for that, for your great love. We thank you in Jesus' name.